Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Acts 28. I'm going to read briefly from Acts 28. Verses 17 through 31 is the second half of this chapter, the very last section of the book of Acts. Paul is in Rome, and we're going to look at his encounter there with his first audience in Rome and how Luke leaves us with this end of the story in the book of Acts. In a moment, we'll turn over to Psalm 67, which is our Psalm of the Month and our sermon passage this morning. But first, Acts 28, beginning in verse 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, Though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you, to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. Then they said to him, We neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to know, to hear from you what you think, for concerning this sect we know that it is spoken against everywhere. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified to the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets, from morning until evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the heart of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn. That I, so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God, and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Amen. So talk about your cliffhangers. Luke has written two long books, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. And he has put them together as This part one, the life of Christ on earth. Part two, the life of Christ in heaven. 
And he gets to the end of the story and he's like, and there was Paul in Rome. Have a nice life, see you in heaven. And we're like, what's the end of the story? And Luke's like, I told you the end of the story. This is the end of the story. And Paul preached the kingdom and taught Christ with confidence. That's how the story ends. That's what's going to happen, Luke is saying, from the ascension of Jesus Christ until his final coming. This period of the church and its existence will be defined by a confident preaching of the kingdom and teaching of the Christ. That's what we can expect to have happen. He also notices that we can expect that not everyone will respond positively. That not everyone will yield a heart of faith. And so with that in mind, Luke ends with this confidence. No one forbidding him. Have you ever stopped and considered that there is no one forbidding you from talking about Jesus? Even the bad guy who's holding a gun to your head and saying, if you talk about Jesus, I'll kill you, is not, strictly speaking, forbidding you from telling them about Jesus. He's just promising to kill you when you do. But we're Christians. Death is not the end. There is a hope rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that creates a confidence in preaching and teaching that cannot be diminished or defiled. With this in mind, turn back to Psalm 67. Our Psalm of the Month is Psalm 67. Psalm 67. Just these seven verses. Here again, the word of the Lord. To the chief musician on stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. God be merciful to us and bless us. And cause his face to shine upon us. Salah. That your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples Praise you. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the peoples righteously and govern the nations on earth. Silah. Oh, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. And all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Amen. And amen. When I was a little boy in middle school, I bought a baseball hat. It was white on top with a black brim. And it had a polar bear on the front. And to this day, I don't know what it was about that hat, but I liked that polar bear. I thought that polar bear looked so cool up there on that hat. So I bought it. I took it home, and this was what we did in those days. I sat there, breaking in the brim of the hat, rolling it down 
At night, I'd stick my baseball inside the brim and wrap it with a rubber band to keep breaking that brim down into the right shape. When at last, after the proper amount of time, I stopped bending and breaking that brim, I stopped storing my baseball in the rubber bands, and I put that hat on my head, and I looked in the mirror, and I realized I hadn't split it in the middle. The brim was uneven. (laughs) And I thought, well, that's not going to work at all. So it sat on my dresser for many days as I wrestled with, what do I do with this hat? Finally, finally, my love for the polar bear overcame my disgust at the misshapen brim, and I slapped that hat on my head, and I went to school. No sooner did I sit down in this big yellow school bus than some other, I don't remember who it was, middle schooler, said to me, your hat's crooked. I know my hat's crooked. And this became a thing. He started teasing me about my crooked hat. He started picking on me for my crooked hat. And he started insisting that I give him the opportunity to take my hat and to fix it. And of course, nothing stirs up the pride of a young man like someone else trying to fix his work. So I said no. And I resisted. And the scene began to escalate as teenage boys on a school bus can. Until at last, one of the cool high school boys in the back shouted out, I'm paraphrasing for your sake, stop, leave him alone. If he wants to wear his hat crooked, that's fine. Just leave him alone. I tipped my thanks to the cool high school in the back with my crooked hat and went on with life. Never to wear that hat to school again. Do you know what it's like to be made fun of? Do you know what it's like to be bullied? Do you know what it's like to have a piece of your life loved, appreciated, disappear? Because of the cruelty and unkindness of someone else. Psalm 67 is a psalm for you. Psalm 67 is a psalm for those of us who know what it is like to be taunted and mocked. To be ridiculed. And to have our lives reduced to a joke. And to feel the hurt of a world that does not appreciate that which we love. It's right there in the subtitle, to the chief musician, meaning this is a psalm for the choir. This is a psalm for the congregation to sing, for all believers to come together and sing this psalm. It says, on Neganoth. Some of your translations will say stringed instruments, but there is no place in the Old Testament where Neganoth means stringed instruments. They made that up. The word appears in the book of Job in Isaiah, and there it's referring to songs that mock, that taunt, that ridicule. This is a psalm for those hearts who feel Satan's taunt 
As he says, you're not a very good Christian. As he says, those sins that have troubled you are still troubling you. This is a psalm for those who know Neganoth. Who know the taunt of this world that says, why do it the hard way? Come, indulge, enjoy, be happy. Those who know the taunt of society that says this life is hard. And this faith is hard. For you who have suffered the taunts of this world, the taunts of Satan, the taunts of your own conscience, to you I say, come. Here's a psalm for you. A psalm to teach you that God will bless His people. It is a fact. A truth on which you can build your life. There are not many things I can guarantee you in your life. I can guarantee you this. He will bless His people. And on that truth, let us pray for others to worship with us. Because we believe His blessing is on us and will be on us, let us pray for others to come join us and to be blessed with us. Let's go through the psalm together. Notice at the beginning, the first Selah comes at the heels of verse 1. The psalmist teaches us to pray. In fact, the psalm consists of three prayers, each repeated twice. The first prayer is a prayer of peace. May we have, as the people of God, peace. The second prayer in verse 3 is of evangelism. May the nations and peoples come and join us in our worship of God. It's repeated in verse 5. Even as the prayer of peace is repeated in verses 6 and 7. Then there in the middle in verse 4 is the kingdom prayer. The prayer for the kingship of God to be over the earth. With this structure in mind, notice that a prayer for the peace of God's people is rooted in the ironic benediction. Which I read from Numbers chapter 6 and I'll share it with you later. God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause His face to shine upon us. These three verbs reference together those six verbs which make up the three couplets and the benediction of the priest. That God should be merciful to us. That He should have a heart for us that is fundamentally compassionate and kind. That He would be inclined to love us And do what is good for us. But we're not simply content that God should have toward us a loving disposition. But secondly, that He would bless us. That is, that we would experience that love of God. That we would have in our lives those real, grabbable, tangible expressions of love. That we would be a blessed people. But then thirdly, that He would cause His face To shine upon us. This is a great metaphor. Does anyone here know how to make your face shine? Marlon just did it. Does anyone else know how to make their face shine? It's the Hebrew metaphor for a smile. And may he smile at us. You see, as a preacher, you learn to interpret your audience. I know when you're paying attention, and I know when you've checked out. Don't worry. 
I don't hold it against you. I assume it's my fault. When I see eye contact, I'm like, ah, they're listening. When I see them scribbling notes, I go, ah, that was an important point. When I see tears running down their cheeks, I'm like, what did I say? When we see the face of a human being, we understand the feelings that are within it. I remember the horror I experienced the first time somebody filmed me preaching and then had the gall to show it to me. And I'm like, what am I doing with my face? Because it's so expressive. It terrified me. And I don't look at those anymore. The face becomes this canvas on which the soul is played out. And we say of God, we want you to love us. And we want tokens of your love in our lives. Chief, foremost of that token, we want your smile. We want to see with our eyes how much you love us. This smile of God, his name is Jesus. Because God does not have a body like men. And so God took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul so that one day he could look you in the eye and smile. That is Jesus, God's smile. The light of his countenance and his face. We pray that the church would be a place where the love of God is experienced in tangible ways. Where the love of God is visible in Jesus-like ways. Selah. Stop and think. Is that what we experience in the church? Is that what we're actually like? When people come through those doors... When people dwell in our dwellings, when they have relationships with us, are we the people who in this world are known for having the love of God? Because Jesus himself would tell the church, by this, they will know you are my disciples. That you love one another. This is what the psalmist prays for. This is what we must pray for. To pray for that peace that comes from knowing the love of God and loving one another in and out of that love. There's a consequence to it in verse 2. That your way may be known on earth. That your salvation may be known among the nations. The psalmist teaches us to pray that the church would abound with the love of God, would know His love, would have tangible marks of His love, would have eyewitness experience of His love, so that in this community of love, the world might learn how God relates to sinners. That the world might taste and see the way God lives and runs this world. That He runs the world on love. That he runs the world on mercy and blessing. That he runs the world by the light of his face. The joy of his smile. That they might discover that's the way he does it. Now, again, there was someone in the New Testament who specifically said, I am the way, the truth, 
and the light. So when we speak of the light of God's face, we're speaking of Jesus. And when we speak of God's way in the world, we're speaking of Jesus. And then thirdly, your salvation. Some of you can actually tell me the Hebrew word for your salvation. At least as it comes over in Aramaic. Jesus. Yeshua. It's that word in a different form. Jesus is known among the nations because he is experienced in the life of the church. This is our first prayer in Psalm 67. That when we look at the world and we say, this church isn't quite right. When we look at the world and we say, my life as a Christian isn't quite right. How do I get out of the discouragement of recognizing, guys, we're a hot mess. You know what? We have a lot of vacant pulpits. And the only thing more tragic than the shortage of RP pastors right now is the shortage of RP ruling elders. We're a hot mess. Our church has problems. And it's not just an absence of officers. We are a church beset by many struggles and many sorrows. And we are Christians struggling to make a go of it in this world. And we need prayers like this. Prayers that say, but Lord, bring us back to your love. But Lord, let us see the blessing of your love. Lord, let us feel the reality of your love. Let me be very pointed about this. Because I think the psalm wants us to be. Do you know that God loves you? I mean, do you really know it? Have you experienced the love of God in your life? Have you asked Him for things and He said yes? You prayed and He answered. Have you come to this table, eaten and drank and went, Wow, He does love me. Have you seen the waters of baptism on baby after baby after baby and been like, Wow, He does love us. Have you heard sermon after sermon where I'm up here throwing out my voice saying he loves you? Have you actually experienced this? Is this your personal reality? Is this our congregational reality? Is this our denominational reality? We are the people who are loved by God. And so we love one another. This is how Jesus gets known in the world. Then our second prayer. We pray in verses 3 and 5 that this love, which comes only from God in Christ, is now ours to share and indulge and delight in, becomes the people's love. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Verse 5, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Notice there is only one slight variation in the repetition. In the first line it says, let the peoples praise you. Simply meaning those who are not Israelites. Those who are not yet praising him. Those who have to grow up into praising him. Those who have to be called into praising him. The nations, the peoples. Those outside the covenant relationship with God. 
who have not experienced His love, who have not read His Word, strangers. But then in the second line, the psalmist says, let all the peoples praise you. Now we have two options in interpreting that addition of the word all. Since it's done in both verses 3 and 5, it seems that it is not merely a poetic flavor. But it is something theologically weighty. A little word with just three letters in English that means something very important for our consideration. Now on the one hand, we could all turn into universalists. It became very popular in New England 200 years ago to do that. We could all turn into universalists and argue that all means each and every individual. But we have lots of scripture passages that prove that that's a bad way to understand the word all. Rather, the word all here that seems to be so important and so pregnant with theological importance seems to communicate all kinds of people. You see, he loves you. Do you grasp that? Have you experienced that? Is that the defining reality of you as an individual? He loves you. He loves this church. Is that our defining reality? That we we organize everything around this principle and grow everything out of that principle. You know what else? He doesn't just love you. He loves a lot of those neighbors and coworkers you find so hard to love. He loves them too. He loves all kinds of people. He loves those that are very hard to love. He loves those we'd rather not love. He loves those that we love to have far away from us. He loves the poor and the needy. He loves the widow and the orphan. He loves the oppressed and the imprisoned. He loves the addicted and the strung out. He loves the despairing and the depressed. He loves the lonely and the frightened. He loves them. And it is a great, great encouragement to us. He even loves the self-righteous. Who think that none of those problems are their problem. Missing that great problem of pride. Friends, do we recognize that this love that is so great for us is greater than us? That it is a love for the world? That there is an all driving this love? All kinds of people. He longs for you to come and hear, know this love of God. He longs for you to bring others with you. And this becomes our prayer of evangelism. John Piper would put it this way. There is missions because there is not worship. The grace of God is intended to lead us to the glory of God. That we want all the peoples, that is all kinds of peoples, to praise Him with us, to experience the richness of His love and to worship with us. Now for this to come about, the psalmist gives us then one more prayer in verse 4. This prayer is the prayer of the kingdom. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you shall judge the peoples righteously and govern the nations on earth. This is this second Salah. 
Notice that the two Salahs together create a parallel between two different people groups. First, in verse 1, there is the church who is the recipient of mercy and blessing and divine smile, who abound in love and therefore reveal the loving ways of God to the world. But here in verse 4, it is not the people of God, it is the nations and the peoples. Not the church, not the Israelites, but the world outside the church. And it is them for whom we pray. We pray first that they would be glad and sing for joy. That they would come and join us in worship. But this is a striking prayer request. The church here in Psalm 67 isn't merely praying that those who are outside in the world would come and join us and fill up our pews so that we can feel better about ourselves. Notice the engine of worship for which we pray. Joy. Teach the world the joy of worship. This becomes a two-edged sword for us. Friends, if we don't enjoy worship, there's no way they are. How is this city going to learn that it is a joy to follow Jesus when we don't have any? The psalmist says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. But the nations can only discover the gladness and the joy of living in the love of God When we have that joy, when we are rooted in the love of God and find that joy growing up within us and out from us. Now, before you are crushed under the weight of being unable to produce that kind of joy, let me tell you, you are unable to produce that kind of joy. The observation that we as a congregation must have joyful praise is not a command that you can fulfill. Because remember in Galatians chapter 5, joy is the second fruit of the Spirit. You don't grow joy. The Spirit does. You have to ask for it. You have to receive it. You have to humble yourself and keep in step with the Spirit and find that it is following the Spirit that is the source of joy. Joy isn't something we manufacture. Joy isn't something we chase after. Joy is a fruit that grows up in our lives when we are rooted in the love of God. When we are spending time meditating on the love of God. When we are asking God for His love in our life. This love has a peculiar expression in verse 4. For you will judge the peoples righteously and govern the nations on earth. We instinctively, I did anyway... We'll read this verse at first blush and think, how is that going to be a source of joy? God's going to judge the nations? How many of you have sat in front of a judge? I was telling Tom about this a week ago. When I was a teenager and got caught for speeding, I went before a judge. Let me tell you, there was no joy. I was a terrified little teenager who had no idea what he was doing. The only other time, though, that I have sat before a judge was a moment of tremendous joy. 
You see, my brother and sister were sitting at the table across from a judge. And she looked at them and she said, with this pen stroke, that little girl is your daughter. She signed the paper. And she judged that girl to be their daughter. What a joy. What a joy to have a judge in heaven who will look down on us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Who will look down on us and say, you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. This is what we have to recover. Not just today, every day. When you wake up tomorrow, do you remember the judgments of God? That He has judged you righteous? That He has judged you beloved? That every sin you have still not yet committed, He's already judged it forgiven. That every fault you have still not yet perfected, He has already judged it pardoned. He has already said, I love you. This is the love of God, that He forgives sin, past, present, and future. This is the love of God, that He judges righteously, and He judges repentant sinners righteous. And so too, He governs the nations. Instinctively, I come to this verse, and I think, oh yes, He governs the nations. He'll raise them up, and He'll tear them down. But what source of joy is that? In the words of John Calvin, I don't think it is the providence of God that the psalmist here is celebrating. No, God governs the nations in a way that causes them to have joy. That is, He sends the missionaries. That is, He establishes church plants in them. If the Lord blesses the labors of our missionaries, can you imagine the joy in the nations overseas? Friends, do you not understand that if He blesses our efforts at evangelism and discipleship and church planting in this region, can you imagine the joy of New England when they have heard the good news of Jesus Christ? This is what Psalm 67 has in mind, is that the nations come and join us in singing for joy when they have grasped the gospel of joy that we ourselves have grasped, that God is governing the world for a purpose. To save sinners. That God has brought you into this room for a purpose. To show you his love. To show you his grace. Why are you alive? Why are you alive today? Why will you be alive tomorrow? If Lord willing you are. Here is his purpose. That you might glorify and enjoy him. That you might have joy in Him and His love for you. Jesus again will make this point to His disciples in John 15. When He will say, these things I have told you. You abide in Me and My Word abides in you. So that your joy may be complete. I always struggle with that verse. Is it really Jesus' goal for my life to give me complete joy? John 15 says yes. Psalm 67 says yes. Friends, this is God's work in our world. We learn to pray, Lord, give us joy. Lord, give us the joy of knowing you. 
so that the peoples will praise you. The psalmist working his way back out then ends in verse 6 and 7. The earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. And all the ends of the earth shall fear him. There is something in the Hebrew verbs that needs to be noticed. First is that each verb throughout the psalm thus far has been translated as a prayer or petition. These final verbs could be translated the same way. They're the same parts of verb. It could be that the earth, Lord, may the earth yield its increase. Lord, please bless us. Please bless us that the earth may fear you. It could be a continuation of the prayer. But every translation in English has always adopted this attitude. That 6 and 7 is not a capstone to the prayer but a resounding confession of confidence such as we saw in the Apostle Paul in Acts 28. That these things which we have asked for, that we would be a community of love. That God's love would bring to us a joy that would then be contagious to our world is something we can expect Him to say yes to. Something we can expect to be the outcome. God shall bless us. Yes, God shall bless us. This is the reality. This is why I stick my hands in the air at the end of every service. I make direct eye contact with each and every one of you. And I proclaim. I publish. I announce to you the fact. He will bless you. He does love you. And he will give you tokens of that love. And he will lead to this life of joy. This is what he does. And so the result is that the earth shall yield its increase. There are two ways we could possibly understand this. One is that the earth itself is fruitful. We get the good things of this life. And you know what? That's true, isn't it? Some of the greatest sources of joy in this life... Some of the most confirming expressions of God's love in this world is those people we get to enjoy it with. The food and the drink we have, the shelter, the friendship, the work. Our earth is full of good things that express the love of God. And they generally increase to our good. But I think in the flow of the psalm, there is something else more richly imagined here. What Matthew Henry calls the second tier. That there is another way to understand the earth. The people therein. That there is growth to the church. When my missions professor began his class on the history of Christian missions, he said to us, have you ever considered that the church, since it was born in the garden... In Genesis 3, and consisted of two communicant members, Adam and Eve, has never shrunk. Never. Not once. It only ever grows. There are two reasons for this. The first is we never lose members. When saints 
in this visible church translate to glory, we haven't lost them. We just moved them to a different part of the role. Amen. The church has not shrunk when people die. Second, because the kingdom is advancing. Christ is destroying darkness. And ever since Pentecost, going out through the book of Acts, there is this spread and increase of grace. Our God is not stingy with love. My friends, this is a truth I want you to build your individual life on. He loves you and he will bless you. You know what else though? This is a truth I want you to build your congregation on. He loves us and he will bless us. You know what else? This is a truth we should build our nation on. He loves us and he will bless us. He's a God whose love is greater than the sins of this nation. And believe me, we've got some awful sin. But there is more grace in God than sin in us. It is a love that expands outward and the world yields its increase. The community of grace grows up and grows out. This too is what Jesus promised in his earthly ministry. When he said, we're going to take a mustard seed. And we're going to see it grow up into a cedar of Lebanon. You heard about that in Sabbath school, some of you. This giant tree of strength that symbolizes permanence. This is the experience of the kingdom. That we advance from strength to strength, according to Psalm 84, until the ends of the earth fear him. Until the towering tree that is the kingdom of God, that tree of life, which is Jesus Christ, is covered the whole earth with the shadow of his love. So that this place is so thoroughly interwoven with the experience of the love of God that you can sooner separate water from ocean than you can separate this life experience from love. That's what Jeremiah promises. How many of you can separate water from sea? Jeremiah says... You can separate the water from the sea as much as you can separate this world from the knowledge of God in Christ. So the question is for us, do we actually experience this? Do we actually live in this love? Do we actually live in this joy? Do we actually set up our tents and camp in this grace, and there find the heart to pray. For Psalm 67 is a prayer, three prayers. A prayer that we would live in this love, live in this joy, and that others would join us. Friends, your God will bless you. He most certainly shall bless you. So let us pray for others to come and join the blessing. Let us pray for others to join us. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful psalm. We thank you for the rich imagery, the powerful poetry, 
We thank you for your spirit's work in it and through it, that your spirit caused it to come into being through your prophet long ago, and that your spirit now has enriched it to our lives through the preaching of it. Father, we ask now that these words which we have heard will settle into our souls like seed and bear much fruit, that we would hear and obey being faithful to pray for ourselves and others, to know your love, to know your joy, and to be blessed through you. Our Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you-